most of you should remember last July and August uh, in the summertime, Ron preached a seven message series on, uh, he called it the What is the series. So what is the church, what is communion, what is baptism, and all those different basic essentials of the church. And uh, you can find those messages on our church website at englishchurchtokyo.net, okay, not org.net. And just go to the audio button, and then when you get there, then click on 2017. And I really recommend going back and listening to those, especially the two messages on the church and church leadership. They make a really good foundation for what I want to cover here. So I'm going to call this one today Church Essentials. And by the way, uh, I'm on today and next week. So, Yoroshiku. Uh, <laughs> The subject of church leadership has really been on my heart, and partly because I am in church leadership, and uh, also partly because we're right in the middle of three major congregational meetings. We had one in March, we, got, we had one last Sunday, and then we have one coming up in June. And then partly, as was mentioned today too, and as Flossie prayed, the Japanese department's been without a pastor for almost a year. And also with this March and April period, the Japanese department has gone through some major leadership transitions as well. So we really want to keep them in our prayers. It's a, it's a major pivotal point in our church right now. There's a whole church are really grappling with leadership matters up front and in real time. And the other thing is I've noticed that this issue seems to be on a lot of other people's hearts as well. In the last, I don't know, the last two or three months, even here or back in the States, it seems like so many conversations I had with people gravitated to matters of the church. Plus, there was, in the last two months at least, there was two major church leader conferences in the U.S., and both of them were strongly focused on the church. During one of those conferences, I had a chance to listen in a little bit in the live stream when I was back in the States. But one of the keynote speakers made a point that really stuck with me, really struck me. And uh, he's talking to pastors mainly. But he says, uh, I'll quote it here. Part of what you have to do, brothers, I know it feels awkward, but you've got to teach your job description from the Bible. The church needs to know what you're supposed to be doing. And they need to know what they're supposed to be doing to be a church. So... I took that to heart, and I'm going to try to do that this weekend next. And at first, honestly, I thought, wow, I've got two Sundays. And then I started working on it, and I realized I only have two Sundays. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it does feel a little bit awkward for me to address this particular topic. It's uh, another issue that uh, was discussed on that panel was that people, teachers in the church who faithfully teach the scripture, need to come to grips with the fact that you're preaching above yourself. You're preaching the Word of God. So you can be sure that there is some trepidation here. But as a church, we need to take to heart, to take seriously what the Word of God says, what the Bible lays out in regard to both church leadership and church membership. So let's pray together before we get into it. Father, again, this is your church. This is Jesus' body, Jesus' bride. 
Lord, we ask that the authority and the power of your word would, would be able to come through unhindered. Lord, I pray that you would remove distractions, remove the distraction even of the presentation, and let your word do its work. I pray that we would have receptive hearts to your word, the authority of your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are so many ways to approach the subject of church leadership. And I think probably with the limited time we have here, a good way to come at it would be through one narrative. And it's a long one, but I'd like to look at Acts 20. And uh, Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem, and he was in a hurry. He was trying to get back for Pentecost. And so that rather than stopping in Ephesus, and in Ephesus he'd had a very effective ministry for three years, But rather than stop there, what he did was he stopped in a port town called Miletus, and then he called the Ephesian elders, the elders of the church, to come and meet him there. And this passage that we're going to read today is, I'm sure the conversation was much longer than this, but this is what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record. So let's read through this. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs 
and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. You know, there's something about a person's last words, whether it's from a deathbed or whether it's a final goodbye. There's something that gives those words much more weight. And words are generally not wasted in situations like that. It's the things that are of the greatest importance or the things that are closest to the heart that are shared. Now, this is a lengthy passage, and there's a lot in it. But I think if we can draw out two general categories, we can try to get a little bit better grasp on some principles that church leaders need to take to heart. The first category, I'm going to call Paul's example. This is more implicit in the passage, but there's a lot in it. And the second is what we'll call this Paul's exhortation. And those are the more the direct, more specific things he urges them. Let's start pulling some things out. The first example that he showed, and actually he stated it, was that he was humble, humility. He says, you yourselves know that from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, and then verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Now, that's very plainly stated, but we also know from 2 Corinthians, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 12, we know that Paul was not immune to pride, and that's why he said God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And he repeated it twice, to keep me from exalting myself. There really can be no place for pride or arrogance in the Lord's work. We know James 4, 6. I think most of us know that verse. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we need his grace to do his work. It's a spiritual work we're called to. It's beyond us as humans, and we need his grace and his work to do that. There's no place for pride. There's no place for pride in salvation, and there's no place for pride in church leadership. Just last Wednesday, before our prayer meeting starts, we usually take a look at a passage of Scripture. We looked at a passage from Titus, and let me just read just a little bit of that. This is from Titus 3. I'll just pick it up here from verse 2. Paul says to Titus, malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We have no basis for pride even among non-Christians. Paul several times recounted how he had persecuted the church. He called himself the chief of sinners. And then it says, but when the kindness of God our Savior 
and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We're all together in that. Church leaders cannot have an attitude of spiritual superiority. We've all been saved by grace through faith, and it's undeserved. And that's why Paul said, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he was resolute and absolute in regard to his message. And that comes out in verse 20 and 27. He says twice, I did not shrink. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And then in 27 it says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul knew that he was entrusted with God's word in the same way the Old Testament prophets were entrusted with God's word. He was entrusted with the gospel of eternal salvation. And he was entrusted with the truth of eternal judgment. Listen to what he says here in uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.16. And this is pretty strong. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion... For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And then he says, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So church leaders, especially those with the responsibility to teach, must teach the whole purpose of God, the complete gospel. We cannot cherry pick We cannot dilute, we cannot edit, and we cannot distort God's word. It's not our word. It's God's word. It's his word. And we have to be faithful in accurately handling it. That's why in uh, 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, Pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This is a message of salvation for souls, and we've got to get it right. And following Paul's example, we have to be resolute in proclaiming it. And uh, just in respect to this, notice there's an interesting lead-up. I'm going to go back to this verse. There's an interesting lead-up to this. And that is, um, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, where does that come from? What, what What does he mean by that? I'm innocent of the blood of all men. We need to go back to Ezekiel. God spoke to Ezekiel. And he was reviewing with Ezekiel the importance of of a watchman. A watchman whose job it is to warn people, to warn a city of coming danger. And then he says, Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked... O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked man of his way. 
That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. Then he says, but, but if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Those are serious words, and there's no doubt that Paul took this charge to Ezekiel to his own heart. And so should we. Paul taught the word of God publicly and from house to house. Verse 31 says, uh, Night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's conviction regarding the seriousness of his responsibility and the seriousness of his message. And really, what was his message? Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then down to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. It's a serious message that we've been entrusted with. We can't take it lightly. We can't take it casually. We can't take it flippantly. That's the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And we're the ones now who have it, and we're the ones who are responsible for it. The importance of the message has not decreased. The urgency of the message has not diminished And if that's true, then the conviction and the passion of Paul should be ours as well. And the question is, is it? Third point I think we can pull out of Paul's example is his absolute commitment. I mean, look at, it's it's just in here. Look at Paul's passion. Look at the level of his commitment. And then you see this here. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And you know, at first when I read that, I thought, wow, that's that's really heroic. It's a real heroic attitude. And then it struck me that all that is, is that Paul was saying and living out simply what Jesus said to his disciples. Jesus said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is for all of us. It's not for some top level elite disciples. It's not the Christian gold plan. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, we read that now and we think, yeah, take up our cross. We think of a cross as something you hang around your neck, like a Christian symbol. Back when Jesus said that, the only symbol the cross was, was a Roman execution method. It did not have any religious meaning to it. It was an instrument of death. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit 
his own soul. You know, in this time and age, you know, in Japan or North America or Europe, where a lot of us are from, you know, we're not facing death threats right now. A lot of places in the world are. And a few hundred years ago only, it was happening here. But even so, even where we are now, it still begs the question, what are we living for? This isn't only for church leaders. Paul's practical, everyday example was not living for himself or for selfish pursuits. Just down in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. But instead, he was living to fulfill the calling to ministry that he received from Jesus himself. And before we just dismiss that as Paul was special, he had special direct revelation from Jesus. Keep in mind that this down in verse 28, when we go back, it said, it is the Holy Spirit who makes you overseers. The Lord has made us overseers. It's the same calling. Do we have the same determination and commitment in fulfilling the task that we've been entrusted with from the Lord himself, the same way Paul demonstrated it? And then fourth, he was an example. And I know that that's the heading, Paul's example. But you know, really, and this is really key to the whole category here, that he was a good example of being a good example. In other words, he was an intentional example. In uh, verse 35, he says, In everything I showed you, in everything, this is right there, in everything I showed you, that's Paul living his life, not just living his life, but living his life as a leader, as an example to the flock. So all those things, working hard and going beyond what was expected, foregoing his rights as an apostle, really, those were just done purposely to set a good example of gracious and responsible living. And in fact, he states it right directly to the Thessalonian church. It says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardships, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And then he instructed Titus, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. You know, the responsibility of leadership to serve as examples is a serious one. And quite frankly, standing up here saying this is a little bit intimidating. I was saying to Miami yesterday, this, this is hard in a way. Because MCC is my home church. I mean, most of you know me. And it's like, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm going to be an example to my parents. Or I'm going to be an example to my wife. They can see right through me. I mean, they know, they know all my immaturity and all my bad attitudes and all my selfishness and all my stupidity. 
don't say anything. <laughs> yeah, don't say anything. <laughs> but it does mean that it has to be real. It has to be real. Lord, may your grace and work in our lives be real and evident. All these examples that Paul set, they're all character qualities. You notice that? In fact, if you listen to Ron's message from last summer, he lists, he goes through the first Timothy three list. And when you go through that list of qualifications, you'll find that they are all character based. They're all about character. The only one that you could probably take and say, well, that's a skill based thing is the ability to teach. But even then, a teacher has to be what they're teaching. It's not based on talent. It's not based on skills. It's not even based on education. It's not based on experience. It's based on character of Christ's life in us. And that's why Paul could simply sum up the whole concept and say, be Remember when Paul said, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And that's really the bottom line in church leaders' responsibility to be examples. There's a lot more to say, but the next part here is Paul's exhortation. There's really only two parts to this. Just remember that as we look at these, this is in the context of Paul's example, what we just looked at Paul's life. And these people that he's talking to, these elders, they knew firsthand what Paul was talking about. They, they saw his conviction. They saw his passion. And they saw his commitment even to death in ministry. So then he exhorts them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The gravity of those words should drive every church leader to their knees. Let the weight of those words sink in for anyone who's in church leadership. And notice what comes first. Guard for yourselves. It's like Paul's instruction to Timothy earlier. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. None of us is immune to temptation or deception or error, and we're not above falling. In fact, those in leadership are often under more attack. It is a spiritual battle, and we're in it. The numbers are many. Christian leaders, pastors, ministry directors getting pulled off course, making foolish decisions, succumbing to temptation and falling morally. And the fallout, the fallout, you can't calculate. And the scripture is full of examples, real examples of those who had lapses in judgment and sinned. And the consequences were real and they were far-reaching. Moses, just one moment of anger, Moses did not treat God as holy in front of the Israelites. And he disobeyed God's command and he was not allowed to enter the promised land. 
David one night fell into sexual sin and that led to murder. And yes, God restored him, but his family never recovered from that. And Solomon, 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 the king of promise, who said he was loved by God, God appeared to him twice. Solomon fell away into idolatry. And the nation never recovered. The nation split. The northern kingdom, gone. The southern kingdom, all over the place. And finally, gone. And Israel has never been the same. None of us are above them. That's why we need each other to hold each other up, to keep each other accountable, and to keep each other in line with the truth. And that's why leaders need the prayers of the church. We need the prayers of the church. We need you to hold us up. It's real. It's real life. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Leaders are responsible, in effect, to be gatekeepers to the church. Temptation and deception and error are all around, and they're not just passive, they are malignant and aggressive, and they're always looking to penetrate. And then Paul says, I know, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Those things can arise spontaneously from within the body. Paul's epistles, he calls out names. Men who have, he says, gone astray from the truth. Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus. The Apostle John names Diotrephes. Uh, The letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus calls out churches that were infiltrated by people who are promoting sexual immorality. And one church is even tolerating it. In fact, when you look at church history, church history is this one long narrative. Much like Israel, churches, denominations, institutions repeating the same patterns. It always starts with leadership. Leadership getting complacent, letting down their guard, compromising, often compromising on the Bible, and often compromising with Genesis. And then peeling off into error, and eventually apostasy. You don't have to look very far. Just look at any Ivy League university in the United States. Most of them started as seminaries teaching men to preach the Word of God. Yale, Harvard. Look at Japan. International Christian University. And Dan Brannan gets run off campus for talking with students one-on-one about the gospel, by the chaplain. chaplain. (laughs) You know, it's it's like it's like one of those grassy plants, you know, with uh, it's kind of starts off with leaves coming up straight. And then as the leaves grow, they kind of start going off to the side and they come up and go off to the side and go off to the side. And, you know, the plant keeps growing, but those leaves that go off to the side, often they, you know, they kind of turn a dull green after a while and they kind of get limp. And then they turn brown, but oh, they still look a little bit green and they're still hanging on. 
But you know what? They're dying. And then they turn brown. But they're still hanging on. But eventually they die. But you know what? There's always, there's always the remnant. There's always the shoot growing up straight. Because Jesus promised, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of death will not overcome it. He will build it. The responsibility of church leaders is to make sure that in our time, in our place, that we are part of the straight shoot in line with the truth that has spiritual life. That's what our responsibility is. We've been given fair warning in scripture and in history. And this is our time and this is our watch. And we need to make sure that we are on the alert. On the alert. We need to pay attention. Be sober. How many times does Paul say, be sober or be sober-minded? Be vigilant and be discerning. And then finally... I'll just put this up here so you can get the points then. Be a shepherd. And just very quickly, what's a shepherd? Jesus charged Peter three times after his resurrection. He said, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and tend my sheep. Can you hear the compassion and the love Jesus has for his church in that? And... It's amazing to think that in many respects how much Jesus loves his church, that he was entrusting it to men. He was entrusting it to man. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. And Paul was giving the same charge to the Ephesian elders. Shepherd the church of God. What do shepherds do? Basically comes down to three things. Lead, feed, and care. They don't drive the sheep, they don't exploit them, and they don't abuse them. And there's a very good reason for that. Because it's the church of God which he purchased with his blood. For those in church leadership, what a momentous and immeasurable responsibility. It's actually a fearsome thing. Who's up to it? We were just talking about Peter being personally charged. This is what Peter wrote. This is what Peter wrote at the end of his first epistle, and it sums everything up very well. 1 Peter 5, 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. That is humility. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, remembering it's the Holy Spirit who makes us overseers. According to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. In other words, we're not in this for the money, or for any kind of worldly gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. There is so much more to say. This is such an important topic, isn't it? It's not only for church leadership. 
And next week I hope we'll be able to move on to church membership. But for every one of us involved in church leadership, not just church leadership as in pastors or deacons or, or people on the board, but this is for everyone who's in any type of leadership, like teaching small groups or mentoring, teaching Sunday school, Bible studies, or any kind of ministry when you're leading others. Two verses from Hebrews chapter 13, and just think through the implications of this for all of us. First verse 7, Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And then verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Not maybe. We will give an account. We will all give an account. We will all give an account. But those who have been entrusted with leadership will give account for that. Lord, these are these are heavy words. These are serious words. Not one of us is able or worthy in and of ourselves to to live up to this. Like Paul recorded, and I'll read this, Paul said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, make us worthy leaders in this, that we would, together as a church, press on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. Lord, that it would be real. I pray that we would take these truths from your word and take them to heart and press on in obedience. I pray this in Jesus' name, the shepherd of the church, the Lord of the church, the Son of God. Amen.